Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, welcome to the History Hit World Wars podcast, a podcast dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. In this podcast, we actually step a little bit further back into history, to that period just before the First World War. And this is so we can explore nationalism and a potent ethno-nationalism, something that we hear a lot about today with the rise of the alt-right and the new right and a spread of nationalism across the world. But we're lucky enough to have the fantastic Pablo Diolana from King's College London, an expert in nationalism who actually takes us back on a history of ideas, back to that period before the First World War, and shows us how nationalism can lead to great battles, not only over ideas, but also into war itself. Pablo, your research is fascinating. I was looking into some of your articles and seeing how nationalism drives anonymity within society. And we see this today, of course. We see the alt-right and the new right and a wave of nationalism that spreads around the world. But what I saw in your work is actually you take this idea back into history to just before the world wars. What is it about this period that sparks a drive for nationalism and leads us into that period of conflict? Hi, James. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, I suppose that um, as a historian of ideas, I'm a theorist that looks to the history of ideas to understand how they work today and how they have worked in the past. Nationalism is not as old as we might imagine, and nor is it as independent as it is often claimed. Now, nationalists like to think of their ideas as a simple expression of nature. It is the, a social idea of what nature wants us to do. But that's not necessarily the case. The history of nationalism begins as a reaction against the universalism of liberalism in the French Revolution. And, in, and so in many ways, we are now in the third or fourth episode of nationalist struggles against the universalist liberal ideas of the French Revolution. If these universalist ideas want to make mankind sovereign and every human equal, created equal under the eyes of God, as it says in the uh, preamble of the American Constitution and the French Declaration of the Rights of Man, nationalism arose to say, well, only some people deserve rights. Only those born 
of a certain origin. This was Napoleon. Napoleon began the, using the word nation as a concept that gave rights only to some citizens and not others. This was particularly associated with colonialism because Haitian slaves had rebelled and so the French had to decide what are the limits of our universal granting of freedom to everyone. Well, it turns out these slaves and the colonials should not have these and neither should foreigners. Later, in the 19th century, the greatest period of growth in these ideas happens in the 19th century. And it's a vital period because it is in the 19th century that ideas of nationalism acquire a relationship to the body and to nature. In Germany in the 19th century, a set of ideas emerged that we would now call ethnogeopolitics. They saw international relations as a struggle among nations that should be read as a struggle among living beings, among species. We've got an essay by Alfred Schellen called Staten ums Lebensform, the state as a living organism. And then subsequent writers like Ranke and others developed a tradition that we call geopolitical. But it really is ethnogeopolitical because it looked at every nation as a species struggling to survive against others. So it's a zero-sum game for survival. And in the 19th century, we have key concepts that emerge. One, the zero-sum struggle for survival. Two, how this affects the individual. And we see this idea today in the likes of Trump. It's not that foreigners are evil, it's that they can't help struggle against us. They're designed to struggle against us. That, that is nature, species struggling for survival. So these develop in the 19th century. And by the beginning of the 20th century, they are the dominant way of thinking about international relations throughout Western Europe, also in Britain. If you think in Britain, that's the height of the empire. Ideas of ethnic struggle were vital to the empire. We are a superior race, that's why we get to rule over them. Ruling over them shows that we are a superior race. And it is our responsibility and we have greater agency and so on and so forth. Now, in Germany and France, in the early 20th century, this took a particularly aggressive and specific form. It's a dynamic that before World War I and afterwards is called revanchisme in France, which means a kind of vengefulness. And the idea was that Germany and France were the two main living beings struggling for survival in Western Europe. So Germany attacks France in the 1870s, the Franco-Prussian War, they win. Germany unifies and then France wants to get Alsace-Lorraine back but at the same time also force its survival and, and it's a survival that requires the annihilation of the other, it's an ethnic survival and so by the beginning of World War I these ideas are dominant in every single actor. Nicholas II in Russia is obsessively ethno-geopolitical, in fact he has several ways of trying to purify the blood of the Russian Empire itself. He's insanely racist, anti-Semitic, but he's also obsessed with a different type of racial purification against Muslims and a very specific way of understanding the Russian state as orthodoxy, monarchy and the people, the blood of Russians, the ethnic Russians. And of course, the whole colonialism. So, for instance, Poland is colonized by Imperial Russia and so on. The same in Germany, obviously, that at this point, Bismarck is a major proponent of ethno-geopolitics. And Bismarck is a very special proponent of ethnogeopolitics because Bismarck constructs the arguments as to why ethnogeopolitical goals always trump democracy. In a very famous speech, he basically shouted down liberals that wanted accountability as to war and expenditure and legal developments, quite simply by saying, you are about to betray Germany. What we need is not speeches and law. What we need is to follow the path of blood and iron for the survival of our country. Blood and iron, violence. 
the assumption of violence. Now, this is an idea where if I don't destroy you, you will destroy me. So we have Russia persuaded of this. We have Germany persuaded of this. Austria-Hungary trying really, really, really hard to keep its multicultural empire together in a nationalist frame, which, surprise, surprise, creates a lot of countervailing nationalisms to fight the Austro-Hungarian nationalism. So Slovak nationalism emerges as anti-Hungarian and so on and so forth. Why? Because identity repression begets identity resistance. This is normal. Colonialism did exactly the same. Many of the reactions to French colonialism in particular were also nationalist for this exact reason, as was Nehru's and the Indian rebels in India. Now, going back to World War I, France wants this struggle. This is a war that everyone wants because the problem of ethnogeopolitics is that it needs the moment of conflict to sort out what's going to happen. Otherwise, we're just in a tension building up to the final struggle. We can see this obsession with the final unnecessary struggle in the alt-right today. They're looking forward to the race war that will finally sort out who rules the earth. Yeah? Will it be white replacement by colored peoples as the alt-right sees it? Or will white people survive? Yeah? As the alt-right likes to call it, the March of the Titans. And so the United States as well is very, shall we say, ethno-nationalist at this point. Woodrow Wilson, despite his liberal credentials, is himself extremely ethno-nationalist and believes in this idea of a hierarchy of nations. And that's why when he promotes national self-determination, it is only for Europeans not for colonial peoples. And I saw in French archives letters sent by French diplomats to American diplomats saying, you would not let black people go to Washington. Why should we let the Vietnamese come to Paris, right? They have their place in our empire, just like black people have in your country. And of course, Woodrow Wilson was a fanatical racist, particularly in the context of Southern Jim Crow laws. Now, World War I is fought very much as this existentialist struggle for survival and for a balance of, shall we say, power that is based on ethnic characteristics in Europe. Crucially, ethno-nationalism was also vital to how the war was lost in Germany. The idea was we are a superior race, and this narrative emerged by the government of Germany itself that Germany had only lost because it had been betrayed by liberals that were too cowardly to do the blood and iron of Bismarck, but also by the other within, the traitors within, that because of their race had to betray Germany. That's the Jews, that's Eastern Europeans in Germany, even many French speakers in Germany, and so on and so forth. This is an idea that had actually emerged in France in the 19th century, the very famous Dreyfus Affair. In his famous essay, J'accuse, Emile Zola, it is often forgotten that the J'accuse is directed at a man called Barès. Now, Maurice Barès was a French thinker that created the word nationalism and created ethno-nationalism in a famous essay called For the Salvation of France Against Foreigners. And there he laid out a thesis where birth determines what culture you can join. So if you're born of the right ethnic group, you may join French culture. Some cultures are more compatible in birth culture than others. So for instance, an Italian will find it less difficult to join French culture, but he will never be able to do it fully than an Algerian. These ideas were extremely influential. Barès became very famous with a speech that was also printed in the papers to which the reply was j'accuse by Emile Zola saying, I don't need a trial to know if Dreyfus is guilty. I know he is guilty because of his race. You see, the assumption is that Dreyfus being Jewish automatically made him a traitor. Why? Because Dreyfus's race, his birth culture, makes him struggle against the French birth culture. You see? So ethnic purity is a vital aspect of security. Going back to 1919, in Germany, it is a little known fact that Germany was ruled by a nationalist dictatorship 
during World War One. It had suspended its own democracy, and this nationalist dictatorship had total control on information, and particularly used ethno-nationalism to essentially project this idea that victory is coming. We are the superior race, and we have all the tools necessary. If we all do the right thing, if everyone stands by their post, we shall triumph. Of course, they did not triumph. And the narrative emerged immediately because that government did not give up power for a couple of months until the Weimar Republic was declared of the idea of the great betrayal. Hitler was a very big fan of this thesis, as were many, many veterans that then would later join the brown shirts and the black shirts exactly because of this narrative. We are the superior race. We only lost because Jews and liberals and traitors degraded our country and made us weaker. Now, of course, this is the fuel of the interwar period. France did not manage to strip Germany as much as it felt it had needed to. The obsession with the Saarland and the coal was very much, again, this ethno-nationalist zero-sum game. They've got more people, more coal and more steel. They're going to win. We need to control the coal to be safe, yeah? Which is why it was one of the French obsessions in the Versailles Treaty to control German coal. Germany is fueled during the interwar period by this narrative of the great betrayal we could have won. And if we had been purer, we would be better off, we would have won. Now, we think of Hitler and company as inventing these ideas of Lebensraum, racial survival, and so on. But this is not true. This, in many ways, absolves the rest of the history of nationalism before the Nazis, but also afterwards. The nationalist tradition had already created the idea of Lebensraum. It was already 80 years old by the time Hitler plagiarized it from Rudolf Hess, and Rudolf Hess had learned it from his professor Hauschofer, and Hauschofer had developed a military version of this ethno-nationalist idea, and had learned it from Ranke, and Ranke from, and so on and so forth, all the way back to the 1790s, and Alfred Schellen with that essay, The State as a Living Organism. Likewise, Lebensraum was an expression of this ethnic survivalist idea. We need more space to have more people. And the Nazis took this very seriously. One of the reasons for Joseph Mengele's obsessive experiments with twins was a plan whereby this huge Lebensraum conquered by the Reich would be planted with a doubled German population. How do you double the German population in a generation? Well, you make sure that every single pregnancy is a twin pregnancy. That was the goal of those experiments, to double the German population by having twin pregnancies as often as possible, to colonize all of this, because again, you need greater numbers of people, resources, and so on and so forth for this ethnic survival. And so these ideas get applied in the interwar period and particularly by the Nazis, but they're also very popular in France at this point. A famous proponent of these ideas is General de Gaulle. Likewise, they are part of the patchwork of ideas all over Europe and in Britain too, to some extent. But because of the Great Depression in Britain and America, shall we say, this idea was a lot more distracted. But it was quite important, for instance, to the isolationists in America. Why would we fight other Germans, so to speak? But of course, World War II is the ultimate expression of these ideas of ethnic survival. Lebensraum conquering your enemies, enslaving your enemies, in the case of France and the Slavs by Germany. Of course, the persecution and the executions of millions of Jews and other minorities, liberals, homosexuals, and so on, that were seen to damage the nation from within, destroy the willingness to do the right thing and fight with blood and iron. And so World War II, shall we say, was supposed for many nationalists to be the proof of this ethno-survivalist idea. In their defeat, shall we say, the Nazis are proven wrong, but the idea does not die. The idea, in fact, remains very influential with two key actors at the end of World War II, General Charles de Gaulle in France and Joseph Stalin in the Soviet Union. Joseph Stalin is obsessed with controlling people 
and linking people to their political behavior and loyalty. So for instance, he deports the entirety of the Crimean Tatar population because he felt that their betrayal was linked to their ethnic group. Your race decides your loyalty, just like Dreyfus and Barres in the 1890s, right? And so Stalin takes over a lot of territory because that is one of the, shall we say, military applications of ethnogeopolitics. You control ethnic groups, you move them around. Stalin reshaped Poland and compressed it and then moved entire populations along the Soviet Union, famously moved all the traitors to what he considered his racial dustbin, which was Kazakhstan, where he moved lots of Koreans, Jews, and anyone he did not like, as well as all of those treacherous Tatars. But on the other side of Europe, the other big ethno-geopoliticist was General de Gaulle. General de Gaulle held up the proceedings of the San Francisco Peace Conference that ended World War II because of his demand to take over the Rhineland, so this was a proposal that France would absorb the Rhineland, the Saarland, the coal fields that are given to France under Versailles Treaty that ended World War I, and Aosta and other regions in Italy. And he said explicitly in these letters, we need to be bigger than Germany in people, in iron and coal. That is the only way to ensure survival. Now, this specific version of ethnonationalism is if you think about it, it's quite technically precise. It doesn't need to obliterate its enemy, but it seeks security by having permanent superiority over the enemy. The enemy is assumed to always be an enemy because we live in a struggle for survival, Darwinian and all that, right? So the only way that France would ever be safe is basically to become Germany. Germany made France unsafe in the Gaulle's eyes by being bigger, having more people and having more coal and steel. Well, if France became bigger, had more people and more coal and steel, then it would be safe. That was his idea. Now, he did not get the Rhineland. He did get a few towns from Italy and did obtain that Germany be quite, quite aggressively cut down in size and population. And of course, Austria taken back out. Now, these ideas were not, shall we say, that dominant after World War II, not least because they were discredited by the fact that the Axis powers were extreme ethno-nationalists and racists. And so the victors probably found that a bit of a hypocrisy considering what they had been fighting to be two ethno-nationalists. The only ones that are very overtly ethno-nationalists for a while is the French Empire, not least because it's fighting colonial wars everywhere to retain its colonies. But in the post-war, as culture and society changes with enormous prosperity in the 50s and 60s and 70s, society changes a very great deal. In the 60s, there is a further evolution, shall we say, of the liberal evolutions of the last 200 years that sought to liberate the individual, shall we say, from social norms. The sexual revolution, the cultural revolution, young people liberated. Whether you agree or not with the hippies and all the communists and so on, and you know, all the drunken kids watching movies in the streets of Paris and smoking marijuana in parks. Well, this was in some ways a cultural change, particularly in personal norms. This is very important. It changed sexual norms and liberated women, most of all. That was its longest lasting impact. And nationalists returned at this instance. Today's nationalists, Trump, Bannon, and so on and so forth, they trace their origin to 1968, when people chose to betray the values of nature. Well, you see, just like Barres, there is only one birth that can lead you to one culture, and this culture does not change. Any change to this culture is evil. Well, they are playing exactly the same game. Nature determines the place of women. To liberate women, to allow homosexuality, you know, children outside of marriage and so on and so forth, 
is to betray this nature. If you betray this nature, our culture will collapse. Any change will destroy it. Also, we will not be able to survive ethnically if women are not churning out babies who turn into you know, armies of survivalist warfare. These social changes are in many ways what incites them the most because the resurgence of ethno-nationalism came via a political movement called the French New Right, La Nouvelle Droite, in the 60s and 70s and the coagulating in the 80s that they essentially broke off from the traditional conservatives with a platform to bring back, shall we say, this nature-derived idea of all of society, women, foreigners, all of it. And I'm very keen to emphasize that in this latest iteration of nationalism, which we could call the fourth wave in nationalist history of thought, they're obsessed with women. Because unlike the previous waves, this time round, it is not just race that is liberated, it is also gender. And they really, 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 really hate this. They see this as the root of the destruction of society. We will not breed as much and have as many children because we have given women independence. And so a key part of the new right today, the new nationalists, everything from Boris Johnson to Trump, Bolsonaro and the like, are totally fixated with putting women back in their place, outlawing or repressing homosexuality and gender liberation and so on and so forth. And this is not an accessory to the ethnic hatred and assumption of destruction that I've been discussing for the last 20 minutes. It is part and parcel. As I often tell my students that here, gender is not a tiny addition to the philosophy of ethnic survival. It is part of the core theory. And the reason for this is that just like nature makes us different, yeah, ethnic groups, different species struggling for survival, nature determines our social roles through our biology. And so women have a social role to produce more children for the ethnic struggles of the future and so on and so forth by giving women the capacity not to bear children contraception and the choice not to bear children. We are destroying the race. And it's not terribly surprising that new nationalist groups on, of the new right tradition, like Generation Identitaire, who radicalized Tarrant, the terrorist in, in Christchurch, the alt-right in the United States, and so on, are one of their main hatreds, as well as migration, is, of course, the liberation of women. Because for them, these are the two ways in which we are destroying uh, the chances of our ethnic survival. And we see the return of the ethnic aspect of this in the anti-migration discourses and, crucially, the neocolonial discourses of the current time. The assumption, for instance, that the presence of any Mexican is dangerous for America is an ethno-nationalist assumption. You can have many opinions about migration, but if migrants all behave the same, yeah, if their behavior is a symptom of their identity, then you are making an ethnic assumption in that their blood determines their behavior. That's why Trump can say they're all rapists and criminals and so on and so forth, right? And that's why his supporters actually exult and were happy at seeing Mexican and Latino children in cages because that cruelty is necessary for survival. If we don't kill them, they, they will kill us. And that survivalism means that there is celebration in the cruelty against the, uh, against the foreigner because for them it is not cruelty. It's depoliticized as a simple accessory of survival. Is a zero-sum game. They will destroy me or I destroy them. And this is important because this depoliticization makes it very unemotional. It does the famous thing of dehumanizing. It's not that I hate them. These Mexicans, the old right will tell you. It's not personal. I don't think that they are personally evil. It's that they are designed to struggle against us. If they are here in this zero-sum game for survival, they will destroy us unless we destroy them. And this as a paradigm for society is growing. It's growing everywhere. It is a key part of Brexit, the way I, I see it. This idea of a sovereignty that is zero-sum and the assumptions that go in with it. And it is dominant in the world right now. 
I mean, here you're talking about a, you know, we're starting to really unearth some what I guess today would call alternative facts and uh, rejection of an objective science. And, you know, that fascinating history you've just presented to us is a history of an idea, but also the power of that idea and how it's influenced individual leaders and driven states to go to war. When we talk about alternative facts and the rejection of this objective science, can we go back and look at wartime leaders like Adolf Hitler, someone who perhaps from what you're saying isn't an iconoclast in any way. He doesn't come up with his own ideas here. He is a sponge that soaks up a generation of ideas and pushes it out to the German people. How does this manifest in Hitler and what policies does he push forward? In the case of Hitler, yes, you're absolutely right. He, he basically coalesces a lot of ideas from the previous century of ethno-nationalist development. But his application was, uh, shall we say, is almost textbook ethno-nationalist. So the expectation of struggle. We have to fight the Soviet Union at some point or other because it's Slavs against us and we have been fighting them. So that's in terms of contemporary foreign policy. He expected struggle as an existential issue. He read history as a history of ethnic struggle. We have always been fighting the Russians, the Teutonic Knights, and always been fighting the French, and so on and so forth. Because he, of the thesis of the betrayal of World War I, he hunted down socialists, communists, liberals, lawyers, anyone that wanted individual rights, human rights, and things like that. And of course, the greatest danger he saw for German society, this big race that was implanted like a parasite inside the German race, Jews. And of course, he went out to destroy them, millions of them, and eradicate them from Europe. He also tried, uh, the way he saw it, to tidy up the racial map of Europe. So taking Jews out of all of Western Europe, also using Poland, as he called it, as a racial dustbin. All the minorities he did not like would go to Poland. Another way in which he played out many of his ethno-nationalist assumptions was also in how he read what was going to happen. We don't talk as much about his expectation that Britain would join him or at least let him do what he wanted to do. There was that very interesting missed opportunity with the Rudolf Hess flight over Scotland and so on. There was an idea, and Hess made it clear when he got captured here in Britain at the beginning of the war, that they expected Britain to resist to a point, try to defend France, but then essentially give up and share Europe with Germany. Why? Because they saw the Brits as a race that was closer to them than the French or, of course, the Slavs or anyone else. This did not happen because at this point, Churchill, for all his ethnic ideas of empire, was not an ethno-nationalist and did not see European history and the conflict with Germany as this specific type of ethnic survivalist struggle. Rather, he saw it as a struggle of ideas. He saw it as a struggle of the people of rights versus a dictatorship based on ethnic hatred. Which is why Churchill spoke very, very obviously of the fascist and the Nazis. And he had it against them and was obsessed with denazification. Why? Because he was fighting the idea in many ways. This was baffling to Hitler. And it's interesting because it's baffling to Hitler and his high command because they believe so much in these ethnic assumptions that, my God, can anyone see the world in any other, in any other way was too surprising for them. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So this is the power of the interpretation of history through the eyes of an enigmatic and charismatic individual who can drive nations in many ways and push their foreign policy, convince people that this is the right way to go. One thing that fascinates me there, of course, is that when it comes to Hitler's narrative, and we talk about the lies or the alternative facts and the propaganda, but some of it is seeded with truths, right? The idea that Germany has been sold down the river after the Treaty of Versailles and the reparations crippled the country. But that goes alongside other powerful narratives of lies. Do you think you always need truth, or at least a hint of truth, to make these ideas sell? I think what they understood, Hitler was not a theorist of race, like he liked to think of himself. If you read Mein Kampf, all of it, except for two chapters, is basically a colossal plagiarization of Hesse's and other people's work, including Hesse's uh, failed doctoral thesis. Actually, probably a, a significant chunk of it was Hesse's doctoral thesis, um, the Eastern Europe chapters and so on. The part that he, was, he wrote and he was good at is actually the propaganda part, the information war. Why? Well, on the one hand, it's not truth and lie in this context when it comes to politics, because politics is subjective. There are many available interpretations for any one event. You get hit on the street, it can happen for a number of reasons, and you can hold several theses in your head, all of which are plausible. In some ways, truth has to be part of any such claim, right, to interpret what's happening. They were very good at, just like nationalists today, Trump is a very good example, at mixing truth and lie and creating, shall we say, the alternative facts, not unlike Trump, because they attach those facts to the lens of nationalism. If you're a patriot, you will believe me, on the one hand. Secondly, I am telling you things, shall we say, from the lens 
of ethnic nationalism. A very good example is, for instance, many voters in the US right now will not believe any explanation of economic depression other than migration. Yeah, is the only one they would believe. This is an interesting, and I've explored this in a paper in Resilience Journal. And this is on the one hand because birthright, yeah, ethnic ideas are very simple to understand. Very, very simple and they're so attractive. You deserve something because you were born. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, and you deserve something that someone else does not. And you can build an entire interpretation of all of history, politics, and what's happening and what's going to happen. The facts themselves become interpreted by this same lens. And this is why ethnic nationalism can do this to the future, but also to the past. We can interpret East-West relations as a struggle for ethnic survival or feudal struggle or struggle over land or any other ways. But you can use ethnic nationalism to read the past struggle, but also to read what's happening now, if that makes sense. I think it's fairly obvious how Trump is doing this in the US right now in a bid to save his re-election campaign. Now, propaganda during the First World War and Second World War and the interwar period was made possible. The lies, shall we say, the mixing of lies and truth, James, very simply because most people believed in these ethnic ideas. Yeah, you could have persuaded most British people about the problems of having inferior races in your homeland. Back then, Britain had the biggest empire in the world. More than a quarter of the world's population lived and died under the British Empire, and yet the vast majority of them were not allowed to come to Britain, quite literally to preserve our racial purity. And in fact, that only became possible after the end of empire in the 1950s and 60s when we needed a large number of workers. And we've been dealing with the outcomes, uh, Enoch Powell and so on and so forth. These assumptions took a long time to die, and they haven't quite died yet. And they are dominant, our foreign policy right now, is based on the assumption more migrants equals more harm. This is a really interesting point for me because you, you can make these parallels between the politics of today and the politics of a, a Nazi Germany, especially in the narratives about the other. But to what extent do you think it's really fair or accurate to say that, and we hear it a lot in the press as well, that Trump is like Hitler or like uh, Marie Le Pen is like Hitler uh, or Mussolini. And we, we hear these parallels all the time. Do you think that that is a justifiable comparison or is it slightly more nuanced than that? Is it a bit more complex? It's far more complex than that. They, shall we say that, like Orwell liked to say, it rhymes. It doesn't repeat itself. That's what we're seeing here. Yes, some themes, like the assumption that the foreigner will just destroy you because he's designed to do so, are present. That's not to say that these ideas are either fascist or descendants of fascism and Nazism. What is the case is that they share a common ancestry. Both share an ethno-geopolitical ancestry, and I'm talking about those 19th century ideas that I was discussing earlier. But they did take two very different paths. So a very, very visible difference between today's new nationalists, say the, the Brexiteers or Trump or Bolsonaro, Modi, and the 1930s generation is how they see salvation. Today's neo-nationalists, they see salvation as going through, shall we say, the erasure of the rules that don't allow us to be a superior race. They want to unleash natural struggle, but they don't want to help their race win, if that makes sense, because they assume that it will win. Whereas 1930s fascists and Nazis were very, very different. They were, first of all, not very conservative at all. They were very modernist. They wanted to supercharge the master race. And they were not very conservative culturally either. 
Mussolini, it is little known, wanted to destroy the Italian family so as to create this new political subject that he called fascist man that only went to his family to sleep and have sex for reproductive purposes. He would work with other men, eat with other men, have fun with other men. He created these social clubs attached to factories called Dopo Lavoro, the after work, where you would drink and have fun and basically you'd just go home to bed. It's a dormitory. Women would all work together and eat together. So that most Italian of institutions, the family dinner, was supposed to disappear under fascism. Another little known fact, Mussolini tried to stop Italians from eating pasta. That other most Italian thing. Yes, because ethno-nationalist survival required lots of pasta and the problem with pasta is that it needs very uh, nice wheat, drum wheat, to be made, which Italy at the time did not produce off enough because he did not really care about Italian culture. For him, it was the, the supercharging of the race with technology, with social change, with enormous ideological change, and the destruction even of the family and traditions like pasta. The same with Hitler. I mean, his army's blitzkrieg run on, on amphetamines for the love of God. This is a very, very, very obvious way in which we're supercharging our soldiers, making them into these mythical Ubermensch. But it is a technological achievement. These guys wanted to reform and change society, as did Stalin, for instance, another nationalist of that era, under a communist umbrella. And so fascism is defined by this extremely energetic and aggressive intervention into society and planning of the future of the race. Whereas in many ways, the ethno-nationalists of today are much lazier, you could say, <laughs> and it's more about removing the barriers to racial triumph and then just let it happen, shall we say. So for instance, Bolsonaro is a good example. He wants to remove all the protections of the indigenous people in the Amazon, you know, and let race sort it out, right? Uh, in that regard, the new right, which is how the, the nationalists of today call themselves, have absorbed two modes of thinking from really, really surprising places in their journey from the 1930s until now, from the 1800s until now, from the common ancestry of the ethno-geopoliticists. From the new left, and this is very surprising, they got the idea that to achieve political change, you need to achieve cultural change. This is an idea lifted from the new left, from Antonio Gramsci. And this is why the new right and the uh, alt-right is so obsessed with moving the overturn window. If we make ethnic ideas acceptable to most of society, then we can achieve political change. And they were right. You get most of society to buy that the presence of the foreigner is a problem, then your politics makes sense because your entire reading of the problem makes sense and your solutions are logical. And another dynamic that is an even later one, they absorbed from the Geneva School of Economics, what is vulgarly called neoliberalism, is the idea of reforming, not by energetic modernist construction, like Mussolini, for example, but rather by removing barriers. What is known in supply-side economics as creative destruction. You just remove lots and lots of regulation. And that's why, for instance, new rights nationalists are so good at breaking political correctness conventions. Why? Because to their voters, this demonstrates, you see, I'm willing to be naughty, I'm willing to be racist. I'm willing to break the political correctness rule that does not allow me to show my superiority and demonstrate it. Why? Because their ultimate objective is to remove these political correctness norms so that this struggle can happen, to unleash it, let it sort itself out, because nature does it. And so it's not fair to call today's nationalists fascists. Actually, it's a terrible misunderstanding that does not do justice to what they do, how they do it, what they want to do, and the means through which they want to reform. They're, they are nationalists, yes, and they, are, they belong to the ethno-nationalist tradition, but that's it. So did Stalin. And you, you say that so did de Gaulle. So this is, this is an interesting point, because 
you know, in the the Anglo-Americanization of the understandings of the war, we perhaps overlook the importance of de Gaulle, his wartime role, his leadership from London, um, and then his, um, of course, importance in reshaping France after the war. Now, you mentioned about how, of course, he wants to bring back territory to France and make sure that France is a powerful and, and, and strong nation. Um, but how does that tie into an ethno-nationalism? Because that sounds like a, a realism, a, a power play. It's about state power and economics. But how is that ethno-nationalism? Absolutely. So the goal is often read as very much a conservative patriot, right? A very realist a uh, very Kissinger kind of character. And in many ways, this is a reading of his second period in leadership, 59 to 65. Yeah? Right, um, okay. Where he was much more limited as a proper constitutional president. Uh, during World War II, where his power was unlimited, when he was provisional president of the French Republic and there was no parliament, so he had unlimited power, um, it wasn't quite the same. On the one hand, he was very, very keen on France demonstrating its post-war power, not reconstruct it, but just prove it through uh, repression of colonial rebels. A very famous speech he gave, copied both in the French Parliament and then in the United Nations, saying ruling over the Indo-Chinese Oriental races proves that France is great. I mean, most people don't know that he tried to take the Rhineland from Germany and was sending Roosevelt these letters about how, you know, France needs to have more people call and steal uh, than Germany or Italy. But perhaps a more subtle way to retrieve his ethno-nationalism is through his cultural policies, for instance. He was a huge fan of Barres, the creator of the word nationalism. What was the logo of the Free French? The Lorraine Cross. Yeah, and, who, and whose symbol was the Lorraine Cross? Joan of Arc. And who made Joan of Arc patron saint of France? Barres. So we have, again, another deep understanding of, of history, but a, a subjective understanding of history by de Gaulle here that influences his policies. I mean, yes, and not only. I mean, it, de Gaulle was a very romantic type of ethno-nationalist, so very 19th century. That's why Barres was such a key part of his thinking. And to him, he particularly loved the idea that France had an unmovable spirit that emerged from the land. It had been unmoving for a thousand years and it was very anthropomorphic and only wanted one thing. Yet when you assume that your entire nation just wants one thing, then you kind of are making assumptions about its nature. De Gaulle, of course, was a much more subtle ethno-nationalist than Hitler and the other ones he was fighting. Obviously, everyone was. Yeah, even Trump is. And so, yes, it's easy to see him as the non-fascist here. He wasn't fascist. As I've said, he belonged to a different nationalist tradition and a French one. Another way in which we can see de Gaulle's nationalism is his influence on events later in the 60s. Gaullism is completely opposed to this liberalism, very much from the reason of if you pervert the nature of society, so quite literally women and sex, then you pervert the nature of the nation. These assumptions are there. You can see these assumptions from the internal French perspective. I think this, this is why we miss them in Britain and in the Anglo-Saxon world, because we're very, very insular and exceptionalist in some ways when we look at the rest of the Western world, is migration. Migration in France is still governed by the same principle as during the French Empire, which is integration and assimilation. And the idea being that you basically have to become French. Why? Because the assumption that any cultural change will blah, 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 blah. But that is also why birth culture is also why the tragedy of three generations later they don't speak Arabic anymore and so on and so forth but they're still not treated as French. This exclusivism is happening because 
much as they claim that if you just learn French and become French and accept our rules, you'll be one of us, there is still an ethnic assumption. Now, this is true all over the West, of course, but the way it's systematically carried out in France not only retains aspects of the colonial era, so particularly the Islamophobia and Arabophobia, you could say, against Algerians in particular, but also retains the assumptions of the, shall we say, an ethnic idea of the nation. But it, France is a fascinating case for many reasons, because both of these ideas come from France. The liberation of mankind as an individual, yeah, the idea that each of us has rights, was a French idea. It was the, the age of lights, yeah, the French Enlightenment. And nationalism was a birthright response to the Enlightenment. Put it this way, the Enlightenment destroyed birthright, class by birth. I am an aristocrat and therefore deserve a certain place in society due to my birth and my blood. This was challenged by Republican universalism and almost immediately, Napoleon, you get a response that says, no, birthright does matter. Just not like in the aristocratic feudal way, it does in the sense of identity. France is therefore the site where many of these ideas have come from and the reactions to them have come from. And ironically, the latest fourth wave of nationalism, the new right, also comes from France. Steve Bannon is a particularly important character here because Steve Bannon is one of the main people that took these French ideas and blew them up in the United States. His documentary about a kind of the cyclical betrayal of history and traditions and nature by the 60s and 70s generation is, is a very, very obvious example. Um, and the 2016 Trump campaign, of course. Thank you so much for taking us on a journey through not only a history of the world wars, you know, the greatest wars that perhaps humanity has seen, but the war that perhaps is still being fought um, across the world. And this is a battle for ideas and one that you've so clearly and eloquently put across. Pablo, what is what is next for you? Are you working on a project to do with the nationalism? Do you have publications that people can read more into this? Of course. Um, so I've got several publications. You can find them and read them for free in my Pure profile. That's P-U-R-E, K-C-L Pure. Just search me on that and you can read all of this complex work on nationalism. I am still looking at nationalism and particularly how nationalism drives violence. Because, James, perhaps the greatest point of this podcast was really that these ideas assume violence to the point that it has to happen. Both world wars were driven by the assumption of I don't kill you, you will kill me. The problem of these ideas returning in the 2000s and 2010s is that this assumption is also returning. I am terrified, not necessarily of a new Nazi wave, but of extreme violence driven by these assumptions. So what's next for me? Well, researching these ideas and try to understand how they work and hopefully dissuade people from its logics. Because it is also true, James, that we live in a world that has very, very few convincing explanations as to what's happening. And it does make sense in that regard that ideas of birth seem so simple and attractive. Pablo, thank you so much and uh, good luck in your work. Thank you. Want flexibility? 
take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.